Thanks for downloading this History Hub podcast. History Hub is based at the University College Dublin School of History. For more information, go to historyhub.ie. In this episode, a paper by Justin Dolan Stover, Assistant Professor of Transnational European History at Idaho State University. His paper, Toward an Environmental History of the Irish Revolution, was given in Queen's University Belfast on October 2nd, 2017. The event was jointly hosted by the Institute for Irish Studies and Commemorating Partition and Civil Wars in Ireland, 2020-2023, a project led by Dr. Marie Coleman and Dr. Dominic Bryan at Queen's. The project examines approaches to the upcoming centenary of the Partition of Ireland and is funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. Justin Dolan Stover's paper was introduced by Marie Coleman. Today's seminar is organised in conjunction with a research project that myself and Dominic Bryan are running in the school on commemorating partition and civil wars in Ireland, looking at how we will approach the the commemoration of that um, contentious period of 1920-2022. So first of all, to to acknowledge the um, financial support of the Arts and Humanities Research Council for that project, We've had a number of, um, of events so far in that, and if you want to follow up more of them, you can uh, get the podcasts of the lectures on historyhub.ie, and today's lecture will also be podcast. Today, the lectures have focused very much on the violence surrounding communal violence and civil war, uh, the, the nature of violence in Ulster during the civil war. Today, we're looking at another way in which um, these, these commemorations can be approached, by, take, by, I suppose, looking at entirely new ways of looking at this period of history. And environmental history and environmental humanities is something that's become uh, quite popular in the last number of years. And those of us who work in the Irish Revolution have, without really knowing it, have read and written much about how the environment was affected by either the IRA going out and um, digging up roads or the black and tans burning the centre, urban centres in Ireland in retaliatory tax. But I don't think we ever realised that what we were doing was actually environmental humanities. And that's what our speaker, uh, Professor Justin Dolan Stover from Idaho State, is going to focus on today. Um, Professor Stover is a graduate of University College Dublin and Trinity College and uh, he's currently an assistant professor of history in Idaho State. So I'll leave it at that and I'll let him um, talk about how we could start looking at the Irish Revolution more from the perspective of uh, environmental humanities. I've been working toward producing an environmental history of the Irish Revolution for about two years, uh, during which time I've come to explore the intersection of interpersonal violence, military innovation, social responses to war damage, and multi-government compensation schemes, which are much more exciting and controversial than they sound. Such a study is, I think, inherently thematic and, in a sense, transnational. Historians have traditionally dissected the Irish Revolution into neat chronological breaks, uh, Easter 1916, 1919-21, and 1922-23, for examples. Uh, This is evident not only in the tables of contents of numerous studies, but the archival organization of source evidence that informs them. In many ways, this is, I think, inescapable, and it's helped us to navigate this complex period through the actor's point of view. Measuring the gravity of the conflict through human casualties, uh, combatant and non-combatant, rebel, police and military, provides similarly definitive uh, methodological boundaries, and as we're no doubt aware, raises welcome debate as to the motivations for violence and the accurate tally of its lethality. I believe a more intimate approach to the period might help complement this existing work, 
while also reconsidering the scope of revolutionary violence in Ireland. Natural and built environments acted as collaborators, or as environmental historians of war have observed, conscript soldiers during the revolution. In this sense, it's hardly surprising that the Irish landscape acted as sort of a fifth column. Local familiarity informed guerrillas' practicality, particularly as shovels, saws, pickaxes and paraffin uh, were more readily available than rifles and grenades. In this regard, preparing the landscape for war meant active service was entered into long before an actual ambush took place, as trees were felled to block roads, houses and creamies were burned to intimidate enemies and disrupt the agricultural economy, roads were trenched and bridges destroyed and rivers blocked to intentionally flood areas. Given the frequency and scale of such damage, larger and more iconic incidents of damage, such as the 1916 Easter Rising, the sack of Balbriggan, or the burning of Cork, were uncommon, though devastating, outliers amongst much more frequent low-scale destruction. Numerous autobiographies and memoirs of the period highlight the foundational contribution of Irish landscapes to the development of a nationalist ideology. Simultaneously, land-grabbing, cattle-driving, illegal grazing, and the destruction of arable fields often occurred outside political pretense. The revolution simply provided a veil under which local uh, scores could be settled. As a result, long-standing agrarian grievances often played out in the transition of authority and local control that existed between 1916 and 1923, all which contribute, I think, to a broader view of the Irish Revolution as a transformative environmental event. How can we measure the Irish Revolution's environmental impact given the multiple sources that contributed to it? This is difficult and requires that the historian abandon modern environmental conceptions regarding ecological damage. For example, we have detailed records regarding the destruction of Dublin in 1916, including the now digitised Dublin Fire Brigade ambulance logbook and the property losses Ireland committee files. But a definitive rate of combustion and CO2 concentration emitted during the rise escapes us, variables that the modern uh, ecologists would require to gauge pollution. This is true of rural landscapes as well, where fire and gelignite were applied toward erasing state security fixtures, such as constabulary barracks and frustrating enemy <coughs> movement and reinforcement. Rather, we might focus on the concentration <coughs> of damage, correlating it with well-developed studies on interpersonal violence and military and rebel operations. Narrative evidence garnered from the Bureau of Military History witness statements, for example, provide the opportunity for narrative deep mapping. A small sample of statements vetted through simple search terms shows an overwhelming concentration of incidents in the south of Ireland between 1919 and 1921 that overlap with the patterns of interpersonal violence we're familiar with. And on a side note, if you're not familiar with these patterns, uh, check out the recently published Atlas of the Irish Revolution, but please lift with your legs, not your back. It's a very big volume. But the witness statements are vague, and in many cases, uh, imprecise. For example, several contributors noted that the number of tree felling, trenching, and road barricading operations undertaken during their service were, quote, too many to recall, or give only their general location near towns or ambush sites. As a result, one node represented on this map um, really fails to accurately portray the scale of damage. It's one instance rather than uh, the entire experience. But other records help to fill the gaps. For instance, Basil Phibbs was far more precise when filing his claim under the Damage to Property Compensation Act, which covered malicious damage during the Irish Civil War. Phibbs, an Anglican farmer, outlined how his farmlands and Corridu Sligo were repeatedly raided from May 1922, resulting in 548 trees valued at 10 shillings each being cut and removed. Claimants for the estate of Louisa Anne Margaret uh, 
Uniac were even more detailed. The solicitor from Mount Uniac, whose mansion in Clay Cork was raided for arms in October 1919 and burned in March 1923, cited the malicious felling of 10 beech trees weighing 2 tons each, 44 beech trees weighing 50 tons total, and 10 oaks, each measuring 18 inches in diameter, between December 1922 and February 1923. In this instance, the claim fell outside the Damage to Property Compensation Act, as assessors noted that the advanced decay of tree stumps on the property contradicted the cited dates of destruction, showing that even people on the ground are, are taking note of the environmental um, aspects of this. Overall, malicious injury records and compensation claims provide a fairly straightforward guide to property loss, but only allow a partial view toward Irish society's environmental experience. Coupled with census returns and the Ordnance Survey's uh, dynamic mapping tools, which is the reason I put this faded map on here, because we can overlap uh, the tools from the Ordnance Survey of Ireland to have a much more dynamic view, and one that actually fills in the gaps in the period of where uh, the Uniac estate uh, was. This gives a more accurate geolocation, uh, which inherently allows us to assess the saturation of damage in an area. However, we must also recognize, I think, uh, a landscape's centrality to local identity and livelihood, and a built environment's contribution to security and sense of place. In this sense, we might broaden environmental considerations to encompass the revolution's impact on physical and mental health, as well as the conception of space and its renegotiation in war, read through the various experiences of participants and witnesses. For this, let me bring you back to 1916, and forgive me, uh, as I too am still reeling from the centenary hangover, but I think there are some experiences that we can see in the Easter Rising that um, are, are also shared throughout the, the broader period. The environmental impact of the Easter Rising was experienced in a number of ways, but it's difficult to calculate. In addition to the physical damage, observers noted experiences that seemed to extend the Western Front from France and Belgium to Dublin City and suburbs. In essence, the Easter Rising was an intense sensory experience, and I've used elements of sensory history to gain access to its environmental impact beyond destroyed property. As the week progressed, artillery bombardment, steady machine gun fire, looting, Ensuring fires, the collapse of tenements, and odor inherent of unattended death grounded the rebellion's ruinous scope and gave a true impression of its scale. Fire was by far the most noted byproduct. The Dublin Fire Brigade struggled to respond to numerous calls as they received rifle fire, which threatened their safety as they tried to attend to fires. As a result, these fires grew and spread rapidly, aided by barricades that escorted flames across the streets and through internally looped buildings, providing oxygen and easing the ignition of new combustibles. Artillery shelling ignited fires near the Irish Times Reserve Printing Office in Lower Abbey Street, which eventually claimed the entire block south to Eden Quay. It quickly spread, along north, uh, it quickly spread north to Sackville Street. Oscar Trainer, who commanded volunteer garrisons in the area, spoke to the localization of conflict I mentioned earlier, and how we're able to assess the scale of damage through individual experiences. I saw the barricade being hit, he said. I saw the fire consuming it, and I saw Keating's bike shop go up. Then Hoyt's chemists caught fire, and when Hoyt's caught fire, the entire block up to Earl Street became involved. Hoyt's had a lot of turpentine and other inflammable stuff, and I saw the fire spread from there to Cleary's department store, whose plate glass windows ran molten into the channel from the terrific heat. But we needn't rely on trainers' observations to gauge the fire's strength. The Golden Committee that oversaw property loss compensation reported that the heat was so intense that fireproof safes failed to prevent their contacts from igniting within, much to the lament of numerous local solicitors whose documents disintegrated. Fire Captain Purcell 
also observed the blaze, which appeared to pause momentarily within the extended height and thick walls of the Dublin Bread Company restaurant before he said, little by little, the smoke and flames gathered strength and then burst through the ventilators and windows. On the scene at the very same time, Seamus Daly simply recalled terrible dust and smoke and blaze and the buildings collapsing on Thursday evening. In many ways, fire linked rebel experiences between central Dublin and outlying posts, which at times mimicked the chaos of Sackville Street. For instance, Clan William House in Ballsbridge acted as a makeshift suburban headquarters for Irish volunteers due to its strategic position in the Mount Street Bridge area overlooking Northumberland Road. Its integrity was short-lived. A shower of grenades ignited a fire that impelled evacuation and eventually burned the stately Victorian residence to its braces. This occurred despite guarantees given to the owner that the structure would be evacuated unharmed. For Joseph O'Connor and others at the scene, the burning of Clan William House inaugurated, quote, a fearful nightmare of fires and explosions that accelerated toward the week's end. As I've noted elsewhere, fire often consumed more than timber and plaster, compounding its imprint and the magnitude of ecological pollution. The Linen Hall Barracks on Coleraine Street, north of the Four Courts, was intentionally burned by rebels on Wednesday of Easter week, as it was deemed too large to occupy. Cans of oil and flammable paint were poured through the building to act as chemical kindling. Fire engulfed stores of oil as it spread, which exploded and filled the air with black, thick smoke. More and Alexander's chemists adjacent to the barracks was also consumed, resulting in a blaze that could be seen for miles. Sean Prendergast echoed Joseph O'Connor when he described the fire as a new and perhaps extremely frightful feature in the long series of thrills during the week, something awesome, fearsome, and amazing, a spectacle beyond description and comprehension. It resembled a huge burning furnace, a veritable inferno. The belching flames that shot skyward lit up an entire area and transformed an otherwise dark night into uncommonly lurid brightness, brighter even than daylight. Oral experiences of rebellion heightened visual impressions of Dublin's destruction. In this regard, limited mobility and static conflict intensified the rising sensory stamp, producing a unique sonic environment that was foreign to rebels and civilians alike and recognisable only to select British troops. Space and class influenced this experience. Inner-city Dubliners, rebels and soldiers, were exposed to deafening, repetitive noise, prolonged views of destruction and progressing decay, and concentrated ecological hazards. Distinct exposure uh, from that of greater suburban Dublin. Nevertheless, those outside the immediate city centre also received the basic indicators of war, hearing explosions, artillery shelling, gunshots, that conveyed the rising's progress and hinted at its potential outcome. Intermittent but persistent gunfire, the smashing of glass, construction of barricades, shouting and screaming, artillery explosions, the roar of fire, and ultimately, firing squad volleys, composed a unique rebellion soundtrack that echoed throughout the city and its environs to form and reinforce memory of the period and influence its writing. In the historically based fiction The Wasted Island, Imro Duffy noted the swift abruptness of encroaching war, communicated through its sounds and concentrations. She said, To those who listened, it seemed like the whole city must be inevitably destroyed. For what buildings could possibly survive the fearful tornado that smote upon their ears? Intimate observers, as well as those removed from immediate danger, became familiar with the noise of the rebellion to the point that they were able to classify its sounds. James Stevens noted that by late Wednesday morning, the report of various types of arms could be easily distinguished. There were rifles, machine guns, and very heavy cannon. Out-of-place volleys, misfires, and explosions were distinguished against an increasingly familiar soundscape. 
while deviant rifle fire and ammunition patterns distinguish rebel posts from the near-uniform crack of British Army rifle models. Evening stillness contrasted daytime commotion, but was itself deceptive and naturally varied by location. Residents in Fitzwilliam Place, roughly a mile south of Sackville Street, remembered Wednesday night as mostly calm and beautiful, a dead silence in which an insurrection was being fought. Hour after hour, there was a buzzing and rattling and thudding of guns, but for that, silence. The very same night, Ernest Jordanson travelled from Drogheda to deposit his children safely with family and then cycled home to Clontarf. Jordison, who managed the British Petroleum Company's Dublin operations, said he hardly met a soul the whole way home. Everything was still and quiet. Even from Santry, the Dublin guns were not enough to muffle the sound of corncrake birds craking in the field along the road, or the bicycle upon the road, which, he said, made a clattering noise in the stillness of the night all the way home. Proximity certainly conveyed the rising's destructive tones. From a distance, detonations and explosions produced dull thuds and booms, as opposed to crashes up close. Undistorted from any distance, however, was the apocalyptic spectacle of Dublin's destruction. Indeed, the flames and reflections were very vivid over the city, even during Jordanson's tranquil cycle home. Beyond rebel resistance, it may be said that Dublin's complete capitulation took several weeks. As various buildings smoldered, collapsed, or were pulled down, and noxious smells continued to pollute the capital. In fact, some rebellion sites remained in ruin throughout the Irish Revolution, memorialized by their ghostly shells and within commercial photograph albums and commemorative handbooks. Nora Connolly distinguished the rebellion's aftermath beyond damaged buildings, which she believed resembled photographs of bomb streets during the war. Rather, it was, she said, the terrible smell of burning buildings and some rubber that created a holistic rebellion experience. Robert Brennan agreed. The air was full of gloom, he recalled. There was a smell of smoke from the charred ruins of the city. The rebellion smell was communicated beyond Dublin to those in the province who, in addition to reading of Leinster's wet weather that week, learned of how fumes of charcoal and the subtle smell of burning wafted over the soft summer breeze. Diverse hosts emitted distinct odours as well. Lifeless animals littered various locations, unable to be moved, interred, or quarantined, their bodies stiffened and decayed as the week progressed. A horse killed near St. Stephen's Green remained in place, stiff and lamentable throughout the week. Near Fairview Park, a dead donkey blocked the road at Ainsley Bridge, swollen and decaying. Oscar Trainer and Finton Murphy successfully freed horses in the city centre when fire in the Metropole Hotel threatened to consume their stables. Sanitation officers later discovered the remains of 14 other horses, which had become trapped in their stables in Henry Street, burned to death. Inasmuch as they had lain in place for several days, the Freeman's Journal reported, the job of dealing with them was a particularly unpleasant one. Dogs and cats fell victim in large numbers as well. There's not a cat or dog left alive in Camden Street, witnessed one young girl. They're lying stiff out in the road and up on the roofs. In all senses, dead animals contribute to the rising's odour of death, which American journalist Percival Phillips observed fell heavy on the morning air. Ad hoc burials were performed throughout the rebellion in an effort to remove the danger of potentially infectious bodies and contain the smell. British soldiers overtaking St. Stephen's Green and turned fallen rebels on the spot. The Dublin Castle Red Cross Hospital similarly buried nearly 70 individuals in the castle's rear garden, approximately 30 of whom arrived from congested hospitals. A coffin shortage and the danger of moving throughout the city prevented these and other bodies being retrieved or even temporarily interred. The public health department viewed inadequate and temporary burials with human remains lying in backyards, lying on roofs and concealed in chimneys as particularly hazardous, which incited fears of a potential health epidemic.
On the 2nd of May, sanitary inspectors began to comb the city, investigating rumors and fears uh, of corpses concealed on roofs, which, prov- which proved groundless, and notifying authorities that they discovered makeshift graves throughout the city. Similar to its hospitals, Dublin cemeteries were unprepared to receive the dead at the pace, and in many cases, the condition in which they arrived. Glasnevin Superintendent James Geary employed, as he called them, powerful disinfectants to contest the scores of dead who arrived in the graveyard uncoffined in lorries and in distressing frequency during this time. By the 11th of July, Glasnevin's gravediggers had interred approximately 250 bodies, many in plain clothes, sheets and blankets, which almost preordained their exhumation and reburial as space and caskets became available. Long-standing grievances over poor wages, long hours, and generally unsafe conditions, which included hazard pay for exhuming corpses, prompted gravediggers to renew strikes at Dean's Grange and Glasdevon cemeteries, which Dublin Council mediated in the interest of public health. Clearing and clean-up efforts contributed to post-rebellion noise and dust pollution, as hundreds of workmen operated amongst the curious probing crowds to demolish half-standing damaged walls, sentinel chimneys, and gaunt towering sections of what had once been fashionable emporiums. They were directed and aided by the borough surveyor staff, the city engineer, and Dublin Corporation's paving department, dangerous buildings staff, who played tug-of-war, as they called it, uh, to bring tottering ruins to the ground with a crash that reverberated through the district and sent great columns of dust right up across the wide streets. Municipally directed clearances occurred between the 3rd of May and the 9th of June, and the Women's National Health Association of Ireland and other groups coordinated an overlapping general cleanup from the 12th to the 19th of May, contributing to collective efforts that attempted to conceal the disfiguring scars of rebellion that showed across Dublin's face. In the years following the Rising, commemorative demonstrations, political rallies, and impulsive receptions fed nationalist enthusiasm and augmented a growing popular front movement. But they also threatened property, stressed and damaged infrastructure, and transformed landscapes' intended functions. At times, this included petty and somewhat bizarre political demonstrations. For instance, a crowd emboldened by De Valera's election to Parliament for East Clare stoned Ballybunion RIC barracks in Kerry on the 11th of July 1917, breaking several windows, a common method and target for the period. The following January, Loughery Quarter Sessions awarded John Darcy £7 compensation for his horse, which had been deshawed, shaved, painted green, and had up de Valera written across its side. Seven pounds. It's not bad. The threat of conscription further aligned politics and militancy. Sinn Féin imported hundreds of Irish volunteers for the South Armagh election, who arrived in Newry in military uniform, carrying hurleys and bearing, the Freeman's Journal noted, a distinct rural appearance. <laughs> Sinn Féin shock troops also descended on the Waterford City election in March, raising questions in the press as to how the party machine was transporting, housing, and maintaining its mobile political army, and the stress this placed on locals and their resources. In fact, several outstanding hotel bills, taxi fares, and meal tabs had yet to be paid in the months following even the 1918 general election. Though it varied by location, government suppression and mounting fear of conscription further stimulated a Republican resistance en masse, which manifested in many forms. Monuments to former British wars and religious markers were assaulted, sometimes repeatedly, in attempts to rewrite the landscape or erase a a particular history from it. In mid-April 1918, four allegedly drunk Irish volunteers destroyed 23 Church of Ireland tombstones at Ballinathone Wicklow, sacrilege believed to have been committed under German influence, of course, 
that Judge Ralph Bereton Berry noted a few years ago would have been impossible in Ireland. In December, a large Celtic cross commemorating the Boer War was damaged in Cork after its attempted demolition with explosives. It was again assaulted in November of 1919 and a larger portion of its base blown away with chalignite. Going forward, Irish volunteers were instructed to be more strategic in their sabotage, though no less crude. A contemporary GHQ pamphlet outlined how volunteers were to employ tactical measures toward resistance. Roads and railways were to be rendered useless by creating barricades, uprooting lines, blocking tunnels with boulders and trees. Telegraph lines and signal boxes were to be cut, wrecked or burned, and cars and petrol stores destroyed. Animals, too, were legitimate targets. The successful raid on Collard's Aerodrome in 1919 was brought off after its guard dogs were neutralized with morphine, which was stuffed into raw pieces of meat and lobbed toward the animals from afar. For the record, the dogs were Airedales, which I didn't know what it was until I had to Google it. It's a, it's a very vicious-looking terrier, I think. Um, but these Airedales, in particular, were described by volunteers Frank Henderson and Michael Lynch as man-eaters that would literally eat up anyone in civilian attire approaching after dark. But perhaps this qualification was given for posterity in their witness statements. Animals had been the target of agrarian crime for a very long time, and maiming, cutting off tails and ears, and driving them to exhaustion certainly continued through the revolutionary period. These and other episodes suggest that spaces do not have to physically suffer damage to be transformed into war zones. Country roads, fields, sports pitches, markets, and homes were all requisitioned for the cause. Some combatants perceived the impact this would have and strove to preserve the integrity of certain locations and the innocence of those who occupied them. For instance, Sean Moylan hesitated staying in houses where there were children and recalled several ambush situations during which he waited until after children had passed to and from school before commencing an attack. In one case, prior to an ambush in 1921, Moylan made his way to a safe house along a path children used to attend the local school. Settling in for the night, he discovered that one of the Mills bombs he was carrying uh, was missing. I thought of the pathway I'd traversed, he recalled, and of the fact that some children might find the bomb with tragic results. Moylan retraced his steps along that communally uh, used path and eventually found the device, sacrificing his own night's rest before an attack in order to protect children for the potential result of their own curiosity. Conversely, raids on residences tainted the physical and emotional security that they provided. This was as true for veterans and country gentlemen visited by the IRA in search of guns as it was for Republican families raided by soldiers. Robert Brennan was hiding in a neighbor's house in 1920 when a raid occurred on his own home two doors away. I thought of Una and our three little girls, he recalled, and bitterly realized I could do nothing for them. The next morning, Brennan found his wife standing in a window in their home, pale and silent, traumatized from her experience. I believe violations of space link the destruction of property and its environmental bearing to the revolution's social history, aspects firmly grounded during the War of Independence and magnified in many ways during the Irish Civil War. The Damage to Property Compensation Act files illustrate this in unique ways. This was taken from uh, a few files that kind of summed up um, the number of applications received from each uh, county and borough. And this is the amount of... Um, money claimed by each county. And we can return to these later if you want a closer work look. But the total number of claims throughout the period of the Civil War was nearly 27,000 claims lodged, uh, totaling approximately 14 million pounds. But what type of damage occurred? 
and what does it reveal about the social nature of conflict and community response during the Irish Civil War, a time when the withdrawal of the British Army and disbandment of the RIC intensified the vacuum of security and public order. County Limerick provides an appropriate case study, I think. Its property compensation files were among the first to be catalogued by the National Archives, and its finding aid is now available online, along with several others. Limerick acted as a thoroughfare for anti-treaty Republican forces, which withdrew south from Limerick City ahead of the provisional government reinforcements in July of 1922. A small sample of 25 incidents from Limerick from June, July and August 1922 illustrates the diversity of damage and how it affected the land and its inhabitants. My sample here uh, includes the destruction of bridges, which are the the coloured circles, uh, the knocking of walls and fences onto roads, felling of trees, which are the little arrows, digging of trenches and forming of barricades across the roads, which are green squares. I purposefully excluded arson and the destruction and commandeering of property um, during this time to, um, to really highlight the natural, the damage to natural environments or built-up environments for traversing the land. And the reason is that um, the number of arson reports were, were, were enormous. Uh, for example, in late August 1922, the Cork Examiner reported that compensation claims arising out of disturbances in Limerick had already totaled £176,000. And my sample up here only contributes £1,500 to that figure, not even 1% of the total. In addition, destruction stemming from communal tensions, such as cattle driving and land occupation, were not as prevalent in Limerick at this time. Uh, Damage was almost exclusively linked to military maneuvers, which makes this an even more, I think, um, focused sample. However, while overtly linked to military strategy, the destruction of trees, roads, bridges, and walls produced unforeseen costs and perhaps unintended damage, consequential damage, that we often fail to categorize. Several cases illustrate this point. Both the Republican IRA and National Forces destroyed a number of bridges between June and August, specifically Colavy Bridge south of Ardpatrick, two bridges spanning the River Albeg that connected Mount Russell, Jamestown, Ballymac Chainboy, and Newport Cross south of Kilmallock, a bridge that covered the rail line at Gary and Dirk, and further north, a bridge between the townlands of Drumbane and Castle Urquhart. Though demolished to impede troop movements, the destruction of these bridges led to further landscape deformation. Thomas Hickey and John Blackwell claimed flooding following the destruction of the bridge between Drumbane and Castle Urquhart by national troops in early July had seriously damaged their lands, ruining five and seven acres of grassland and produce, respectively. The fences marking James Quain's property were torn down and his land transformed into a makeshift road after Calavy Bridge was destroyed. Similarly, traffic was diverted through the farms of David Coleman and David Roche near Jamestown, where trespass continued until 1924. In his compensation application, Roche claimed, as each passage became too difficult for traffic, fresh passages were cut up away from the fields, leaving them torn and useless. This was done by his neighbors. One field under tillage had to be continually guarded, he stated, to prevent cattle from destroying his crops. While initial destruction of property shows the flow of military pursuit, its consequent impact, even after the Civil War um, reaches its conclusion, highlights important but often unseen aspects of the conflict and the banal experience of everyday life. The road adjacent to Roche's farm, there in in the south, was the only route to the local creamery. In reality, his land was rutted, churned, and disrupted more by his neighbors than by any military force. People from the community who, like himself, had to draw home hay and turf and continue with their lives in spite of a wrecked bridge. I'd like to conclude, or begin to conclude, with a broad observation 
But environmental damage during the Irish Revolution was unique in many ways, but also represents a continuum with agrarian crime in Ireland and its tested methods. Further, Ireland's war environment I think, invites transnational comparison with the war damage management in Britain, France and Belgium. And it might not surprise you to learn that the Irish Free State requested the French and Belgian governments provide them with legal frameworks for assessing war damage and awarding compensation, or that Sinn Féin propagandists often conveyed Ireland's victimhood to international audiences in the context of ruined Flanders and Louvain, so as to present familiar parallels, particularly to American audiences. In working toward an environmental history of the Irish Revolution, I'm cognizant of the need to situate the Irish experience against its own circumstances, as well as within the base priorities of participants and those simply caught in the crossfire. To consider the emphasis placed on politically and religiously based compensation awards, to recognize that old scores were settled communally through field spiking or the burning of hayricks, and to acknowledge that rebuilding projects in Dublin, Cork and elsewhere were delayed uh, due to post-war material and labor shortages rather than political motive in many cases. These realities, I think, extend our consideration of war casualties, the rehabilitation and remembrance, and beyond human actors, to include the various stages on which those actors performed. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this History Hub podcast. For more podcasts from commemorating partition and civil wars in Ireland, 2020 to 2023, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts.